I've had one of those bubble burst moments this weekend as a parent. Our eldest has been in a pretty sweet spot uh, where it seems that everything I do she wants to copy. She loves doing what I'm doing. Uh, she even begins to sound like me, which isn't always a good thing. The other day she got out of the car and said, Mummy, I'm so tired, I've hit the wall. <laughs> Her grandmother says that too. <laughs> she always wants me for a cuddle, and she adores me, um, apart from when she's being disciplined or when it's time to get off the swing and go home. And up until this weekend, I've been the adored parent who she just wants to emulate, but something has shifted She's always had her own opinions about what she eats and all of that, but she's beginning to have her own opinion about what looks good and growing up things. And um, it's different to mine for the first time. And I got home from the hairdressers the other night, uh, and the next morning she said to me, Mummy, I didn't get to see your hair when you got home. And I said, no, darling, that's because you were asleep in bed. And she, I said, you can see it now. Do you like it? No, not really, Mummy. <laughs> And in this story uh, of the loaves and the fishes today, we see something similar happening to the disciples. Jesus has asked something of them, and they don't really like it. They are beginning to form their own opinions of what's appropriate for Jesus to do and what's not. And as we will see, Jesus tells the disciples something to do, and they just don't like what what he's told them to do. But let's back up a little bit and introduce this story before we get to the awkward part. Now, this feeding of the 5,000 is a very well-known story uh, of Jesus, perhaps one of the most famous Bible stories right up there along Noah's Ark that even non-Bible readers will have heard about. It's kind of a warm fuzzy, isn't it? There's no uh, demons, there's no crippled people begging, there's no sickness. Jesus is having a picnic. You can kind of imagine the picnic rugs and everyone cozying down to hear Jesus' teaching. And, it is, and at first sight, it does look like Jesus is simply the best host in the world. They've run out of food, so he magically provides some. But that is not what's going on here. Something far more amazing is at play. And so let's dive right into the story. What I'm going to do is I'm going to skim quickly through the story, and I'm going to point out some important details. And then I'm going to give you three things to notice about what God is doing here. Uh, I tried to buck the trend and just do two, but the third I just couldn't miss. Um, And then uh, it just turned into two bigger sermons, so I've actually divided it in half, and you're only going to hear one point today and two points next week. Um, So if you don't make it next week, I would recommend you listen to the recording for next week because it does um, have a lot more of a practical implication next week. Um, So follow along with me in your Bibles because I'm not going to be coordinated enough to bring the verses up on the screen. Uh, In chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples are having a conversation. Verse 39, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now the first thing that strikes me here is that they are telling Jesus all they have done and all they have taught. And you can almost hear the chest swell, the boasting, the, oh Jesus, I've been doing this. Have you heard what we've done? Now, I might be wrong, um, but we all have that temptation to feel proud when we're reporting what we have done, and the disciples would have been no different. And this observation becomes a bit more significant later, so so do remember that. And as they're talking with Jesus, uh, people are still coming and going, and it's so busy, uh, and they haven't even had a chance to eat. And so Jesus says, hey, let's get away from here, guys. Let's get in the boat, go across to the other side of the lake so we can have a rest and have something to eat. Now, also, we need to remember that Jesus' friend, John the Baptist, has just been beheaded by Herod. And in Matthew's Gospel, he highlights the grief that Jesus is also feeling and the space that he needs from the crowds. So, with all of that, they jump in the boat, 
They go to the opposite side of the lake, which was a very remote place, even more remote than Te Pahu. And it was there where the rebel territory was. All those who opposed the Roman Empire and who were plotting rebellion against the Romans, including the zealots, that's where they were all living and hiding out. That was their neck of the woods. So when Jesus and the disciples get there, I'm sure they must have felt a bit of dismay. that They're trying to go to a remote place, but there was a massive crowd that had seen him and got there first. So there were 5,000 people not rest in solitude. And in John's Gospel, uh, he tells the story, and we get a few more extra details about these people who were actually wanting to make Jesus their king of their rebellion. They wanted to make Jesus king by force. Now, I'm sure there would have been a few eye rolls amongst the disciples. I certainly would not be sympathetic and full of compassion like Jesus. I would have said, hey, let's get back in the boat and go to somewhere else. (laughs) But his response was remarkable. He had compassion. And he starts teaching them the gospel. And then came the opportune moment to remind Jesus that they needed some alone time because it was getting late. And they made a very reasonable request. The disciples uh, could see that 5,000 men were hungry uh, and it was in the middle of nowhere. And sending the people away to go and get some food was a really good idea. But then they had this bubble burst moment that I alluded to before because Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And the emphasis in the Greek text is undoubtedly on the you. They did not like that. The other gospel tellings uh, of the story make it a bit softer, but Mark is the most uh, kind of straight to the point and tells it how it was. Their disbelief and their almost sarcastic response. That would take more than half a year's wages, Jesus. What in the heck are you thinking about? What are we going to go and... Are you asking us to go and spend all of that money on bread for these people, these rebels, these people who have destroyed our rest? Now, just remember, it was not that long ago that they've been busy boasting to Jesus about all they have said and done. And suddenly, the chest swell has gone. John tells Jesus, uh, John tells us in his gospel that Jesus was deliberately testing them. And we know that pride comes before it falls, don't we? They did not have the faith to do what Jesus had asked of them, or that he might have something up his sleeve, a miracle perhaps. And fair enough, I think my response would probably have been the same. In fact, often it is the same. Why are you asking me to do this, Jesus? I have nothing to give. And this was certainly my attitude and my common complaint in our first year of ministry. What are you you asking us to do, Lord? What you're asking me to do is totally impossible. You're off your tree, Jesus. (laughs) We're not qualified. We don't have enough to give. And just as Jesus has been exceedingly gracious to me as I have made these responses to his requests, He was also exceedingly gracious to the disciples too. He didn't rebuke them. He simply told them to go and see what they did have amongst them. Five loaves of bread and two fish. Possibly enough for them to have a picnic in the boat on their own, but certainly not enough for 5,000. And remember, it may have only been 5,000 rebels, but it could have been 5,000 men with their families, in which case it would have been 15 to 20,000 people hungry and all getting hangry. We don't know, but regardless, there was far too many people for that amount of food. Now, Jesus then gets them to sit in groups on the green grass. Why this detail of the green grass? Well, Mark is telling us this to indicate that it was spring, and the grass was green in spring, and so later it would would be brown in the heat of the summer, and springtime meant it was also near the time of the Passover. This is an important detail because of what happens next. Jesus takes the bread, looks up to heaven, and gives thanks to God, and he breaks the loaves. 
And in this act, he points towards something that will soon happen on the night before he died. Blessing and breaking the bread with his disciples. And the pattern that the early church would come to use later for its own regular bread-breaking new Passover meal. And what we will do a bit later this morning at the communion table. Breaking the bread, or blessing the bread, breaking it, and giving it. And then he gives it to the disciples to distribute amongst the people. And in the most understated way of all understatements possible, Mark simply says that they all ate and were satisfied. Now, if I was writing this, I would be wanting to write half a page on how it happened and how amazing it was. And let's be honest, we're probably all a bit disappointed with Mark, who doesn't give us any detail about how it actually happened. I would love to know. Becca and I were chatting about this earlier this week. Did the bread magically multiply in their hands, or was it just they went, when they went to get it out of the basket, there was just a bit more there? Or We want to know these details, don't we? We love these sorts of things. But Mark doesn't give us those, uh, because the story is actually about something far more important than Jesus multiplying bread and fish. Now, after they had picked up the leftovers, which was more than they had to begin with, the crowd was finally sent home, and the disciples jumped back in the boat. And Jesus stayed behind to retreat up the mountainside to pray, and he finally gets his solitude. And as we read, uh, later he sees the disciples straining at the oars on the lake. They're in another storm on another lake, a bit of deja vu going on here. But this time Jesus is not asleep in the bottom of the boat. They're on their own. And a bit later, Jesus walks out on the water towards them. Again, Mark annoyingly doesn't give us any details as to how it happens. He just says, he walked out on the lake. And they think he's a ghost. They freak out, as anyone would. And Jesus reassures them and gets into the boat. And again, the storm settles at his command. Mark says they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What does this mean? What don't they understand? Was there more going on at this picnic than what they realised? Yes, there was. And just like the disciples, we often don't see it. This is actually the key to this passage that should alert us to something far bigger that we may be missing too. Many of us have been told the story of the miraculous feedings. And I can remember sermons on this many times. And we usually hear about it in Sunday school um, about it because it's such an impressive story. And often it's easy for us to come to the conclusion that the story is about Jesus being able to multiply what little we have. Jesus cares about our physical feeding as well as our spiritual feeding. And yes, that's all true, absolutely. But there's far more going on in the story than just a picnic. And if we miss that, we miss something massive. So let's take a closer look. Mark crafts this account in a way that echoes a story very familiar to his audience and that we as modern readers often miss. Remember the people who were reading Mark's gospel were very familiar with their Hebrew scriptures and their heritage. They knew uh, their, their history in a way that we often don't and there are details that Mark highlights that helps them to see what Jesus was doing and we have to do a little bit more work to find that out. And the story that Mark is helping us to see that Jesus is, is enacting is the story of the Exodus. That great event in their history where God delivers the Israelites from the oppressive Egyptian slavery. Through Moses, he takes the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, being parted and into the wilderness towards the promised land. And it's the most significant uh, moment in their history is the people of God. And again, it's another famous story that many people have heard of, church going or not. And throughout Mark's gospel, Mark has been telling his readers of the acts of Jesus that echo the story of Exodus. 
Let's think back. Jesus' power over evil spirits and all the signs and wonders he does echoes the power and the signs and wonders that Yahweh does in the ten plagues before he delivers the Israelites from the slavery of Pharaoh. And just like Pharaoh proved that, uh, just like Yahweh proved that Pharaoh's magicians were no match for him and the forces of darkness were nothing to the power of God, Jesus repeatedly shows that he is loyal over the powers of darkness and performs signs and wonders that no one else can match. When Jesus calms the storm, he shows he has power over creation, just like Yahweh did when God showed he had power over creation in the plague of the darkness and in the parting of the Red Sea. When Jesus calls out and appoints his 12 disciples, he is echoing the 12 tribes of Israel who were called out of Egyptian slavery and appointed as a new nation. Are you following with me? And just as we will read about the transfiguration in a couple of weeks' time, with Jesus lifted high in the sky in dazzling white, like the pillar of light in the sky to guide the Israelites in the darkness as they travelled through the wilderness. This is why it's so good to know your Old Testament, because you can see the links with the New Testament. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was doing and saying things that progressively revealed who he was, God incarnate and the very same God who delivered the Israelites from slavery way back in history. And most scholars and commentators frame this gospel of Mark as a new exodus. And this story, the loaves and the fishes, is perhaps out of all of them the strongest echo of that amazing exodus. Here is a large crowd of people in the wilderness, just like the large number of uh, Israelites in the wilderness. Here they are under oppression, Roman oppression, in a similar way to the way the Israelites had been under Egyptian oppression. Here they have no food, so Jesus provides miraculously bread and meat, just like the meat and bread of manna and quail that Yahweh provided in the wilderness for the Israelites. And then because the disciples still don't get it, Jesus walks on the lake. Just like a bunch of tired Israelites who were fearful of the Egyptians pursuing them, in an act of supremacy over the natural order of water, God parts the sea for them. And here we have a tired bunch of disciples who were fearful of the storm, and in an act of supremacy over the natural order of water, Jesus walks across the lake towards them. He is that same God. In Jesus' words to the disciples in verse 50, it is I, when they cry out, they say, who is that? Is that a ghost? Jesus says, it is I. Now they knew the ancient story of God revealing himself to Moses in the burning bush, and God used those very same words, I am. I am who I am. And here the disciples, similarly in fear, wonder who it is. And Jesus uses those words, I am. Now, unfortunately, in the English translation, it has been phrased to say, it is I, because it reads better for us and we understand what he's saying. But in the Greek, it is, I am. Harking back to the declaration of God's name in Exodus. Well, that's nice. Uh, But what else have you got there, Sarah? Well, there's one more thing I need to tell you about. Um, Jesus was about to pass them by. Wasn't that a bit of an odd phrase? In the story. To be honest, it actually sounds a bit rude. When they're in the boat, here comes a ghost. They're freaking out. Um, they're struggling in the, in the lake. They see Jesus. They wonder who the heck it is. And Mark writes that Jesus was about to pass them by. Did he have a moment of amnesia? Was he was like, I'm just going to scare these guys and carry on? Well, no. This is the final parallel that Mark has to put in intentionally to remind the readers of that same part in the Exodus story. When, remember Moses goes up onto the mountain? And he hides in a cleft of the rock, and the Lord's presence passes him by. And this is the language that again echoes the work of Yahweh. 
So the disciples at that point were beginning to freak out and they were really amazed because they suddenly understood who this was. Okay, so that's a really nice observation, Sarah. Why does this Exodus parallel matter? It's interesting, but what does it mean for us? Well, it matters because what Jesus is showing us through his actions and his works, which Mark totally gets and wants to convey to all of his readers, which include us, is that Jesus isn't just a teacher or a prophet, but he is the new and ultimate Moses. He is the new and ultimate deliverer. He is that same Yahweh. He hasn't come to free them from hungry tummies on that hillside. He has come to free them from something far greater, something far more significant. He is enacting a whole new rebellion. So it wasn't a mistake that they ended up in rebellion territory. He is leading a whole new exodus about to deliver the people from something far greater than even the Roman oppression. He is actually responding to those in the wilderness who are hungry for a rebellion, but in a way that's completely unexpected. Jesus has come to deliver his people, which includes us in a rebellion against the darkness of this world, against the hold of the devil. And he came to lead an exodus from the slavery of sin, to call us out from the power of darkness and to make us a new people. Just like the Israelites were given a new dignity as the people of God, they were no longer worthless, nameless slaves. They're now God's people, called to be his sons and daughters and called to be royalty. Now, there are two temptations that we can fall into. Firstly, we can keep living like we're in Egypt. And the second, we can be hard-hearted just like the disciples. So firstly, some of us are still living as if we are in Egypt. Jesus is calling the disciples and anyone else who would recognize him for who he was out of the slavery of the fallen sinful condition and into a new identity. And he calls us to the same thing. We do not have to be slaves to what anyone else thinks of us. We walk with a new identity Slaves are valued by what they do. If you're not producing in the ancient world or if you're not working as a slave, you get fired or killed or worse. We are not valued for what we do or for what we contribute. We are valued for simply who we are, children of God. There is nothing that we can do that will make us any more valuable in God's sight because this is the gospel of grace. But many of us don't live like this. It might be because we don't think we're worth delivering we, don't, we see ourselves still as worthless slaves with our value and what we contribute to the world around us. Some of us are still living enslaved to what other people think of us or what our past says about us. We still value ourselves depending on what we can or can't do. Our pay scale determines our value. Our relationship status determines our value. Our gender determines our value. As the saying goes, something is as valuable as what someone is willing to pay for it. What does it say about your value if Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to die for you to get you out of slavery and into his presence again? Nothing should ever define our value once we have walked through the exodus and deliverance into the life that Jesus Christ has died for us. So that's the first temptation. We can live as if we're still in Egypt. And the second thing, we can miss the whole point of the gospel because we are hard-hearted. Mark says the disciples missed what Jesus was doing with the bread because they were hard-hearted. They didn't see the symbolism with the manna and the rest of the Exodus story because they were hard-hearted. Now, the term hard-hearted is used throughout the uh, Bible, often in the Old Testament, and it refers to those who are unwilling to see God for who he is, to hear what he's asking them to do. 
And the Israelites were accused of this many times, weren't they? They kept doing their own thing. God had redeemed them, but they kept doing their own thing and worshipping other gods. But the ultimate hard-hearted character in the Old Testament was, in this Exodus story, was Pharaoh. And Mark is pointing out that the disciples are no different to Pharaoh. The real danger to them is not the storm, but their spiritual hard-heartedness. We know that as we go through the rest of the story, they do come to see Jesus for who he is. And they become soft-hearted as they journey with him. And it can be the same for us. And that's my prayer for all of us. Our real danger isn't the storms of, in the storms of life that are sickness, broken relationships, lost jobs, disappointment in area, any area that we feel is threatening for us right now. The real danger for us is that we are hard-hearted like these disciples. We don't see or we are unwilling to see Jesus for who he is and what he's really doing. We can't see past the bread. We can't see whether past whether God is answering our temporal problems in life or not. Many of us, many of us live our life in faith dependent on what God is doing in our lives here and now. Many of us can be tempted to feel close to God or far away depending on our circumstances. Are we happy in our jobs, in our relationship status, in the way our children are growing up, the relationships we have in our lives? If things are going well, we find it easy to give God glory. But when things turn tough, when the storms blow up, when we have hungry tummies like the people on the hillside, we turn our backs on God and we get angsty and we blame him for not delivering us from those hardships and our faith becomes based on our everyday circumstances. But then we become like the disciples or anyone else who is called hard-hearted because Jesus is not just a prophet or someone who's just come to make your life easier or just to meet your material breeds and give you bread on a hillside. He is God himself. He has come to take you through an exodus that is far more important and significant than our temporary physical struggles here on earth. If you allow your circumstances to cloud your view of God, you'll end up hard-hearted like the disciples. We must remember that Jesus is not feeding the people bread at a picnic when they run out. He is pointing to himself as the true saviour, the ultimate deliverer and the only one who can satisfy. His bread is the only bread that will fill you and meet your deepest needs and hold you steady amidst the storms of life. We are not just called to a feast on a hillside where Jesus meets our physical hunger, but we are called to the best feast ever, where the bread, Jesus is the bread of life himself, and he invites us to his table to feed on him, having our deepest needs and hungers met forever in this new exodus so much that it will sustain us through those greatest struggles and challenges that we face here and now. The way this ultimate exodus was completed is just as the bread was given out at the picnic, and we're going to pick up on this next week. But remember, Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and it was consumed. The bread had to be broken in order for the people to eat and be nourished. Jesus' life is like this bread. He was blessed. Remember that baptism when the Holy Spirit came down and God said, this is my son who I am well pleased. He was blessed by God. And then just as he held up the bread for the people, as we hold up the bread at the Lord's table, he was held up on a cross for all to see. And he was broken. His body was broken so that we could have life. His blood was poured out, his body pierced so that we can feast on him and live. And when we take the bread and the wine at the communion table, 
We are doing a physical act that represents a spiritual reality. That's what a sacrament is. We are being reminded of the great exodus, the only deliverance that has any eternal significance. As we eat the broken bread and pour and drink the poured out wine, we are reminding ourselves that Jesus was broken for us. His blood was poured out so that we can have life. He is the bread of life that was broken for us, the manna in the desert and the bread at the picnic so that we can live. As I said, I'm going to do part two next week. And we're going to look at two more points in order to help us live more faithfully in light of what Jesus is teaching in this passage. And if you can't come, as I said, have a listen to the recording. And in a moment, we're going to stand and sing as we prepare our hearts for communion. And I would encourage you in this time to just have some moments of, perhaps we can have some uh, music without words just to start with. I'd like you to take this time to address your heart and ask the Lord to show you, where are you hard in heart? Where may you be refusing to see Jesus for who he really is? Is he asking something of you that you are just ignoring? Ask him to show you where you have elevated your physical needs and requests to such a level that your faith in him is based on whether he's answering your prayers in those areas or not. Are you hard-hearted like the disciples and you can't see the significance of what God has done for you? Do you need to ask God to help you see in a fresh way what God has done on the cross? Do you need to repent for thinking God owes you when he's already done more than enough for you, being broken for you so that you may live? Are you refusing to live your new identity as a child of God? Are you still bound up by your past and what other people think of you, by what you can or can't do? If you're still living like this, you haven't lived out of, walked out of Egypt. Let's stand and sing.